Thanks, guys. I appreciate that, Daniel. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> I'm 28, by the way, so if you consider 28 a young buck, then yes, that's it. Okay, we've had a lot of cold weather recently. I know you guys, like, you know, we drove to, like, if you drove to spring break, it's like, oh, are we going to make it up the icy mountain roads? I guess not, because we're not going there. If you've been driving around Chico for a while, it's like, there's, there's ice a lot of places. So I'm sure some of you are going to be able to relate to this experience. This was a long time ago. I was working, uh, a long time ago. It was like eight years ago. All right, I was working a full-time job in Texas with a friend that I was roommates with. And there's like this annual ice storm in Texas. Okay, it happens in January every time. It's like clockwork. Everyone is surprised every year somehow. I don't know how that happens. But it's like, oh, we can't drive. So, and no one knows how to drive on ice because it only happens once a year and no one's expecting it. So, uh, my, my roommate is from Colorado. So, it's icy, but we're both working the same shift. He's like, I got this. We'll drive to work. <laughs> It'll be fine. Uh, he has this like really, really light, and not very traction heavy red truck. Okay, it's like the type you need a few sandbags in the back to like feel comfortable, it's not gonna spin out. And for some reason we decided to go in his truck. I don't know why. But we get to work and after like two hours, uh, they say, hey, like, we're not having people come in. Like, people are gonna work from home, so you guys should probably go home. Like, get, take your stuff, drive home before the snow gets worse, before the ice gets worse. And we're like, cool, no problem. We get in this little truck, we, we're driving home, and we're on this highway, it's like an overpass, so there's no, there's no like shoulder to pull off onto, it's walls on the shoulders. And uh, the truck starts kind of slipping. He's like, oh shoot, and, you know, he's from Colorado, I don't know what he did. Whatever he did, it wasn't working, <laughs> okay? So we're still sliding, and uh, you know, we were, we'd been going pretty slow, so it's not like we were, but, but we were not on track, okay? I was just sitting there. I'm like watching him kind of try the brake and into the gas and turn the wheel and nothing's working. So eventually he just kind of holds the wheel. This is all in like a few seconds, right? But we, he holds the wheel and when we finally stop, we're facing oncoming traffic. It's like we did a 180 on the highway, okay? Um, do you ever feel like your life is out of control? <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? Like, because in that moment, I literally could just think like, wow, I can't do anything. <laughs> I, I, all I can do is sit here. Uh, I know mine really does at some points. You know, whether it's uh, a bad habit you can't seem to shake, or really a lack of purpose that leaves you unsure of what you should be doing. Uh, anger, fear, or sadness that you just like don't know where it's coming from. You can't control it. We're just people who at different points in our lives are out of control. That's true of all of us. And I think, you know, we want to have some measure of security, so we try to find it really just wherever we can. Um, for me, I think one of those areas, I was talking about this with my wife last night, is like card games and board games. Man, those have rules. I can understand all the rules of Settlers of Catan. <laughs> like, I can operate in those rules, and I can do well, because I know exactly what's going on, and I have, I have control there. Some people look to their grades in school or their career to find control. Okay, it's like, all right, if I can get an A, okay, maybe a B. If I can get a B, like Bs, then I'll be fine. Like, I'll know that I have control over my future. Uh, some people really just try and escape feeling out of control. It's like, okay, I don't need to feel in control. I just don't want to feel out of control anymore. So they turn to things like media, substance abuse, or pornography, just looking for security, or at least an escape. 
even if it's fleeting. But what's the truth? What's the truth about life? Life is not a game. Life is not your grades. You can't escape through any temporary means. Okay, when you come back, life is going to be there. So what can help us really find security and safety in a life that we have no control over? And when we just saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, do you believe that's true? I do. Like, people experience that all the time. I think we can find an answer for that in God. So the truth about God that we're talking to, about tonight is his sovereignty. So pray with me as we get into it. God, I really want to ask that you would show us the truth about who you are, that you would really help us to understand your purpose, and God, that we just come away with the truth. Thank you for giving us your word and revealing things to us. I just pray that we would grab onto that, that we would let it change the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So sovereignty is not a word we hear very much. Maybe you hear it and you're like, okay, that's like a king. Yeah, so, you know, kings are sovereign in some way. God's sovereignty is different. So I, gave, I have some, a couple of bullets on your, on your handout. The first one is just God is in control. God is in control. And this is not just of big things, okay, like creation or the general direction of history. This is about like the everyday small things that happen. And more than just being in control, God has a purpose. That's your second blank. So God is in control, and God has a purpose. And he is always moving to achieve that purpose through everything that happens. Isaiah 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Charles Spurgeon had this excellent quote. He's an old preacher. And he said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That's a pretty serious view of God's sovereignty. <laughs> so there's some clarity that I want to give here, okay? Because we see God command things in Scripture. We see God will things in the sense of wanting people to do them in Scripture. Um, do people obey what God wants? No. Okay, we, we know that people don't obey everything God wants. So there's this distinction in the Bible between God's sovereign will and God's moral will. And I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick flyover of this. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is talking about God's sovereign will, okay? If he wants something, it happens. Uh, God created Genesis 1-3 tells us God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is intense. Like, like that alone is just insane. This is a quote from a, a guy that I like a lot. He says, not even nothing can resist the command of Almighty God. You know, we think, oh, like, nothing can stop God. It's like, no, not even nothing can stop God. That's insane. So God created, God sustains. In Acts 17, it says that it's in God that we live and move and have our being. And if God didn't want you to be, you would not be. Okay, like if you ever just thought, well, I don't know, I don't think I want that person to exist anymore. You wouldn't, okay? It's not like you'd have a second, like, what's happening? You're not in an infinity war, like floating away. You just wouldn't be anymore, okay? God ordains. So God created, 
God sustains the universe and God ordains. Proverbs 16.33 says, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. I mean, this is what Spurgeon's getting at too, right? That even things that seem like random chance to us are not random. They're not chance. So God's sovereign will cannot be stopped. It cannot be resisted, okay? He made everything. He's involved in sustaining everything. And he ordains even the things that we think of normally happening by chance. Now, that's different than God's moral will, okay? This is God's will that you should live a holy life. I put a reference on there. You can read that if you want. Um, I'm just going to ask, does, does everyone live a holy life? Do you live a holy life? <laughs> no, like all of us can say like, oh, dude, I'm, I'm not that way. So, you know, there's this question like, okay, is it possible for me to resist the will of God? The moral will of God, yeah, it is possible. People do it all the time. The sovereign will of God is different. John Piper has a great, great quote here. He says, One of the clearest evidences of the difference between God's sovereign will and his moral will is the fact that God morally forbids murder, do not kill the innocent, and yet he willed the murder of his son. He says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God forbids murder, but he wills the murder of Jesus because of the purpose it would accomplish. And this is important, okay? God is not obligated to treat us a certain way. He's not obligated to run the world the way that we think it should be run. He is really free. All of us are limited in our freedom, okay? We're, we have physical bodies. You know, we live in a material world. Uh, I can't just decide to fly up to the stars, okay? But God is not limited at all. He has absolute freedom. That's exactly what happens, too. God isn't just free to do what he wants. What he wants is what happens. And this is why I'm going to come back to this several times tonight, okay? This statement, I really want to drill in as much as possible. And it's understanding God's wisdom and God's goodness is absolutely essential for understanding and accepting his sovereignty. And for the sake of clarity, I'm going to give a quick definition for wisdom and goodness. Wisdom God, with full knowledge of all that has happened, all that is happening, and all of what could happen, always accomplishes his purpose in the best way possible. Okay, God knows everything, and he has purpose for everything. He, he works toward that in the best way possible. Goodness, God is always righteous. And basically what that means is no one is ever done wrong by God. God doesn't do anything wrong to anyone ever. So this, this question of the sovereignty of God has to be understood in terms of his wisdom and his goodness. So how should we respond to this? The first thing is we just need to fear him. We should fear God. This should give us respect, awe, and fear. And what that means is we we'd actually take God seriously. That's all that fearing God means, that we take him very seriously. Jesus says in Matthew, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's comfortable with that statement? <laughs> yeah, no, like that's very uncomfortable. But it's Jesus, okay? Like we, we can't argue with that. And I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Lean into this a little bit, okay? If you need to like set down your notes, this helps you. Uh, just imagine someone totally perfect, okay? You, imagine you know someone totally perfect and they want you to be perfect too. So much so that, that they're following you around and they're watching everything you do. And later you learn they actually can read your mind 
and they know your motives. Oh my gosh, <laughs> terrifying. And then you find out they have the power and authority to destroy your soul and body in hell. That is scary. Like, do you understand the fear of God? Okay, would this change your approach to life? I'm gonna walk through some situations. Just, just imagine what it would be different if this person was there, okay? Someone cuts you off on the highway and you're about to cuss them out. And then you remember who's in the passenger seat. You're holding on to a grudge and during the day, you have to interact with the person you're holding a grudge against. And you're just thinking, oh, I hate this person. <laughs> you're about to make a crude joke that makes fun of something that this person takes seriously. You begin to have lustful thoughts. You slack off in school or at work. You're standing at the Panera kiosk putting in someone else's phone number. I'll let, I'll let the Holy Spirit <laughs> deal with you guys on that one. Okay, this theoretical scenario, this is just reality, all right? Like Hebrews 4.13, it says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, the presence of God is real and it should bring us fear because of what God has the authority and power to do. Now, thank goodness that's not all we have about God, okay? We should also trust him. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, Jesus says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But I'm gonna look, look at the next verses with you so you can see what Jesus follows up with. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. So in the first passage, Jesus tells us to fear God. And the second one, he says, don't be afraid. Is he saying, be afraid, don't be afraid? No, it's, he's saying the only thing we should ever fear is God. And guess what? God thinks you're valuable. That's his awesome truth is that this sovereign God who is in control of everything, who has a purpose for everything, he cares about you. And he thinks you are valuable. There are some challenges, real challenges, that we can face with the sovereignty of God. And that, that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time on. But I wanna recognize first that part of why we have issue with this, part of why we experience these challenges, is because we don't have any reference point outside of Jesus Christ for what a good person is like. Okay, we see like people that we would think are good, people that we think are incorruptible and they fail us. We see people represent us poorly. We see people we trust betray us. Like all these things happen because people are not pure. People are not good. God is not that way. God is good. God is pure. So again, understanding God's wisdom and goodness is absolutely essential to understanding and accepting his sovereignty. Having said that, we're going to talk about some of these challenges. And th these are things that I've personally struggled with. I'm sure a lot of you have too, because these are common. If you haven't, you're going to. And these things can shake us by making us doubt God's power. That's shaking our fear in God or by making us doubt his goodness. And that's making us sh shaking our trust in God. And if you're not settled, like really settled in your mind about these things, you are gonna be shaken. Okay, this, this is important stuff. So you're gonna face these, we're gonna go through them and hopefully it's helpful for you guys. Challenges to fear and trust. The first one we're gonna address is suffering. 
is God sovereign over suffering? If he's sovereign over everything, the answer has to be yes, right? God is sovereign over suffering. In Isaiah 45, 7, God actually claims responsibility. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. I mean, it couldn't be much more clear. So I know, because we're all people who live in this world, that all of us have experienced suffering personally, or have seen loved ones go through things that really just seem impossible, that a God who's good and loving would want. And I'm not speaking from a religious textbook, okay? This is not some dead doctrine. This is real life. This has actual implication for the hard things that you experience and the people you love experience. And I've had questions about that, and I'm sure you have too, and struggled with why God would want that. And it's okay. Like, I would encourage you, really, ask God why things are happening. Ask him to help you understand what's going on. Share your honest feelings with him, even if that's anger or confusion or sadness. I mean, if you read the Psalms, like, this is what you see over and over. People are like, man, God, you're so awesome. You're doing these great things for me. Wow, God, you feel so far away. Why are you, like, holding back your presence from me? God, all these people that are against me are succeeding and I'm failing. Like, what is going on? This is, this is just the book of Psalms, okay? It's all these people talking to God about their circumstances, honestly. And in Psalm 119.71, this author says something pretty shocking, to me at least. He says, it was good for me to be afflicted. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> It's good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. So this guy, at least, he says, man, that hardship I experienced, that was good stuff. It helped me know your decrees. I have a hard time with that. There's a passage in Isaiah that can really help us trust God, even in the middle of things we don't understand. It's Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, God could say this and have no, he has no obligation to tell us any more than that, right? He could leave it at that. Thankfully, he doesn't. He tells us some of the purpose he has in suffering in the Bible. And Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says, this is talking to believers, he says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not, are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So even though we might be confused, okay, we might experience hard things, we might see hard things happen and think, man, why would God want that? How could a good God want that? And we have an answer. Okay? And the life of believers is for our good. So how can you trust God in fear and suffering? How can you fear and trust God in suffering? Um, just don't despair. That's really practical. If you're ever thinking, man, I don't know if I can, can think more. It's like, no, don't despair. You can trust God has purpose for this. And then believe his promises. 
a practical suggestion for you. You don't have to write this down. Just don't complain about your life. Your life is exactly the one God wants you to have. <laughs> if you wanted it to be different, it would be different. This doesn't mean we take suffering lightly or have a flippant attitude towards people who are struggling. Okay, we're told in other places in Scripture to mourn with the people who mourn. There's time for grief. But when we can, even in the middle of grief and mourning, if we can honestly thank God for his purpose and hardship, I think that'll go a long way towards helping us experience his peace. So there are some things we're not going to understand. One day, this is hopefully encouraging to you, one day you're going to die and you'll know exactly what God's will for your life was. Isn't that nice? <laughs> like you'll get to know one day after you die. <laughs> um, we don't get to see a lot of that now, but God does let us in on what the end goal is. Okay, the end of history, Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you can know some things. You can know that suffering is for your good, and you can know that ultimately your life and all of history is going toward that day. That should give us some security. So trust God with the journey there, however difficult that journey is. The second challenge we face is free will. Is God sovereign over free will? He is. Proverbs 16:9 say, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. I'm going to be honest, it's way more palatable, and it would be way more pal palatable for me to say right now that, you know, God controls circumstances, uh, and, you know, maybe he, like, he makes it so our choices can't mess up his plan, um, you know, but he never really interferes with our free will. But that's just not what the Bible teaches. It, it, at least, okay, I'm not going to blast you like a full certainty here. It at least teaches that God has the ability to do this, that he has the ability to direct our decisions. And he actually does that sometimes. Okay, it's not just that he teaches he can, it teaches that he does. And we're going to look at the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt. So Exodus 14, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. They're doing camp by the sea. Pharaoh will think. The Israelites are wandering around the land of confusion, hemmed in by the deserts. And I, as God, will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. So God hardens heart, Pharaoh changes his mind. And they said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all, all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. I do not know exactly how this works, okay? I don't. But one thing is really clear. God is not just responding to Pharaoh's decisions, okay? He's not hoping that the Israelites are gonna be all right as Pharaoh does this thing he didn't expect. God's plan and his purposes are set. Pharaoh's choices were made under God's sovereign will. Now, does that mean that God does this all the time? I don't know, okay? But Proverbs 16:9 says that it's in our hearts, we plan our course, but the Lord establishes our steps. I'm inclined to think that he does. 
don't hear me saying that you're an action figure, okay? God is not just sitting up in heaven like, oh, now he's good. No, like we have a personal responsibility for our choices. John Piper again says, if God is sovereign over the human will, are we responsible? Yes, we are. The Bible says so over and over again that we are. Our choices are our choices. They're true choices. We have a will, our will is active, and we are genuine moral agents. So somehow, there's this mystery where God is over everything, and yet we make choices that we are personally responsible for. And Paul makes the same assertion. Okay, in Romans 9, based on the situation with Pharaoh, here's what he says. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, why does God still blame us? In other words, if I'm an action figure, how can I be blamed for, you know, doing something that I, I really can't do? So why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? And Paul says to these people, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Woof. That's hard. <laughs> now, why do you think Paul brings up this question of why does God blame us? It's got to be because he thinks that his readers are going to understand him saying that God is sovereign and works toward his purpose even in the free wills of the human race. If Paul didn't think that, this was the perfect opportunity for him to say, yeah, God only interfered with Pharaoh, really, and like maybe with Joseph's brothers, I don't know, but not, not with you guys. Don't worry about it. It's like, no, he doesn't say that. He says, who are you to say to God? You know, why am I made this way? So somehow God's sovereignty over our free will doesn't mean we're robots. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think is really helpful on this point. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So God has revealed some things to us. Um, really about what pleases him, about how we should live, even about how the world works, we should take ownership of those things. If you can be sure about something because of the Bible, own that. But don't get preoccupied with secret things. This is one of those mysteries that, honestly, I'm not even sure if I'm going to understand in heaven. Like, I, I'm just so uh, astounded by it. But if we get preoccupied with it, it can really give us, get us off course. John Calvin uh, said, where God closes his holy mouth, I will desist from inquiry. So don't get preoccupied with secret things. How can you fear and trust God with your will? One is just to take responsibility, own up to your choices, own up to your sins, and align yourself with God's moral will. Some practical ideas, confess your sin. Say, God, that was sin, it was wrong. Thank you for forgiving me in Jesus Christ. Help me to not sin anymore. And then read the Bible and apply it. If you don't know what God likes, you won't be able to do what God likes. The last challenge to our fear and trust in God is sin and evil. Is God sovereign over sin and over evil? Yeah. Again, Ephesians 1.11 says, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So on some level, everything that happens is according to God's will. Now, God has ordained that sin and evil exist. That doesn't mean he's pleased by it. 
He's gonna, he works through it for good, but that doesn't remove our guilt. Okay, remember, we're, we are real moral people. Like we make real choices to rebel against God and we are guilty for that. So this doesn't remove our guilt. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Understanding God's wisdom and his goodness is really essential to understanding and accepting his sovereignty at this point as well. So even the sin and evil of morally rebellious beings ultimately, ultimately leads to God's glory. Remember that the universe and everything in it doesn't exist for you. It exists for God, and it exists to glorify God, not to make you happy, not to make you comfortable, and not to make you satisfied. So we're going to go back to the example of the cross, okay? Uh, Did people do wrong by murdering Jesus? Yes. Okay, they have the one innocent guy who's ever lived, and they murder him. That's like the worst crime you could commit. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, not because he's making it like, you know, just a metaphorical. It's like, no, they were guilty. That's why Jesus asked God to forgive them is because these people were guilty of doing wrong. Now, what were the results of that? What were the results of their sin? I mean, it it set the stage for the most important moment in human history. God used the sin and evil of these men to redeem the human race people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So in the cross, we we see this beautiful example of how God uses even sin and evil to bring good to his people and glory to himself. We can run toward that, and we can have comfort in that even more disturbed and troubled by what we see in the world. So how can you fear and trust God when you face sin and evil? There's two things in view here, right? There's the stuff in our own hearts, I don't know about you, but sometimes stuff comes out and I'm like, oh, that's gross. Like, that is really evil. Or the things we see outside of us, the things we see in the world through other people. The, really, the problems, the, the solutions to both these things are the same. And it's commit your life to God and don't be afraid. Now, if God is sovereign and he wants what's best for you and you commit your life to him, what are you going to get? You're going to get what's best for you. If you believe in God and if you trust him, you do not have to fear the sin and evil of others because God is going to protect you from everything that's not ultimately good for you. There's this story of Joseph in Genesis. I've been reading it in my quiet times the past few days. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown in prison and he was forgotten for years. And through insight given to him by God, he's brought to this position of power and authority. And he's able to, to, you know, kind of prepare Egypt for this coming misfortune and coming famine. And when his brothers, who are starving because they have nothing to eat because there's famine, come to him begging for food, they don't recognize him at first. And there's this whole saga of how he eventually brings them to recognize him. But here's the end of that, that arc, Okay. Genesis 45, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. What do you think they're thinking at this moment? Like, dude, we sold this guy into slavery like, you know, 15 years ago, and now he has the ability to just kill us. Why wouldn't he do that? (laughs) You know? 
But Joseph says, now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me. And I want to zero in on that. Okay, what does he say? It was to save lives that you sold me into slavery? No, God sent me. He identifies God as the ultimate cause of this. God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph had really fully committed his life to God. I mean, he, he knew his life was in God's hands. And he saw God's overarching purpose fulfilled even through the sin and evil of men, of his own family. Now, John 3.16 tells us God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to us so that anyone, anyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. If you have not trusted the sovereign God with your life by believing in Jesus, you should do that. You want God on your side. Jesus paid for your sin by dying on the cross. And if you believe in him, you don't have to fear punishment for the sin and evil that is in your own heart. You can take comfort, really, knowing that God is not aimless. He's not arbitrary. He has a purpose. It's a good purpose. And he's going to use everything in your life for good. The Apostle Paul lays this out really wonderfully for us in Romans 8. This is not in your handout. I would encourage you um, just read with me on the slides or just listen. But I'm going to start in verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter, some different sections here. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you commit your life and future into the care of the sovereign God, nothing will be able to separate you from him. Let's pray. God, please help us to be people who believe you, who fear you and trust you. I just pray that you would give us a sense of your presence in our life and a sense of your working God, we need that to withstand just everything that we deal with, everything that's going to come up. And so I pray that you would just help us not to be shaken when hard things come, that we'd really be able to look to you, to trust you, 
and move forward obeying you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.